Hi everyone, James here. Now before we start this week's show, just a couple of bits of business. First of all, this episode was recorded while Anna was still away, and so her place has been taken by one of my oldest friends, the absolute genius that is Jenny Ryan. Now, if you're a fan of quiz shows, you would know her as the vixen of The Chase. If you're a fan of singing talent shows, you might remember her from Celebrity X Factor last year where she got to the final. If you're a fan of podcasts, which I know you are, you might know her from Fingers on Buzzers, the brilliant quiz-based podcast that Jenny does with comedian Lucy Porter. And actually, if you go into the back catalogue of Fingers on Buzzers, you might find an old episode with myself and Anna Tashinsky on, if you are missing her so much that you really need to hear her dulcet tones. Okay, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin, and special guest Jenny Ryan. And once again, we have gathered round our microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Jenny. Here we go. Trigger warning for grossness. Um, <laughs> one theory of the origin of the nursery rhyme Pussycat Pussycat is that it's a reference to Queen Anne's poor personal hygiene and an accumulation of grime that once fell out of her skirt during a service at St. Paul's Cathedral. Ugh. Wow. Mm. Wow. Okay. Where to start with that one? Okay, well, <laughs> let's start with the um, with the actual nursery rhyme, because not everyone might know it, right? So how's mm. it go? Andy, why don't Evens. you regale us with that? <laughs> oh, it's um, Pussycat, Pussycat, where have you been? I've been up to London to look at the Queen, followed by loads more lines. Uh <laughs> Of, right. is there, is there, there is more cat, pussy cat, what did you there I've chased a little mouse under her chair or I've frightened oh, a little mouse under her chair that's actually the important bit now I think that about is it. the important <laughs> bit yeah yeah so it's it's thought that that little mouse is a mouse shaped deposit of all sorts of things that might accumulate in a time when nobody really had a bath or washed their nethers um, so supposedly this uh, this particular lump was known as a suttikin, although that may be a, a more modern name for them uh, because they resembled little mice and people would have to go and sweep them up off the streets. Wait, and uh, hang on. Are you yeah. saying that the TV series Sooty and Sweep has anything to do with this? No. Thank you. Okay, great. Well, I can. <laughs> My childhood is intact. I will. I'll link them up somehow, right? So, um, <laughs> the word Sutterkins does exist. It was. It comes from the Dutch. Uh, it was kind of a joke about Dutch women. Supposedly, they would put heaters up their dresses to keep warm, and some people thought that by doing so, they were breeding a small animal up there, and that the animal mm. would kind of drop out, and they would find this thing. And the word came from um, the word soot. It's similar to the word soot, as in the stuff you get in a chimney. Uh, right. And of course, sooty and sweep is a pun on the fact that chimney sweeps would also find soot. So they are linked yeah. in a way, Andy, if that's what you <laughs> oh, mean. Oh, great. On. Okay. No, my childhood is ruined. Thank you very much. Yeah, brilliant. Um, what kind of person was running so low on inspiration for nursery rhymes <laughs> that when they saw a mess-shaped mouse fall out of the Queen's <laughs> that they thought this this is perfect for kids. <laughs> well, I think what we should say is that most um, explanations for nursery rhymes are speculative at best. And there was a couple called Iona and Peter Opie who wrote the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes. And they basically came to the conclusion that all of these things that people think probably not true and also mm. that they might just be kind of nice words that kind of sound like a good poem and there might not mm. be any reasoning behind them all so whether that's true or whether it's not i don't know but the other thing is that queen anne had quite a lot of enemies right so it's possible that if this is true this origin that it was people trying to say bad things about her and mm. 
you know. That. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was basically you, gossip, yeah. wasn't it? The the nursery rhymes you've had a way of spreading anything is to make it into a little folk song mm. and get it spreading around the streets of London. Weirdly, this is not the only nursery rhyme that Queen Anne is supposedly involved with. Really? Yeah, there's another one. Okay, so do you remember the warming pan baby? Nope. So no. um <laughs> Anne, when she wasn't queen yet, she was in line to the throne, and so was her older sister, Mary. Um, And their dad was James II, uh, who was king. And in 1688, James II had a a son, a baby boy, with his new wife, which displaced Mary and Anne from the line of succession. So they were kind of lower down the rung now. Um, And Anne was furious about this. She refused to attend the birth, and there was a rumour spread that the baby had not been born alive. It had been a miscarriage. And actually, a live baby had been smuggled into the bedroom in a warming Ah. pan, which were these big sort of brass pans that you Mm. would put hot coals in to warm up the bed. Right. That's the story. (laughs) It's it's also untrue. But we might (laughs) get the nursery rhyme, Rockabye Baby, from that child. Really? Yeah. And what's the explanation behind it? It's incredibly spurious. Okay. <laughs> that, um, <laughs> that thing about, change. Um, about yeah. how you thought that someone might swap the baby, isn't that why, and I'm going to get this wrong, but isn't the Home Secretary supposed to be at every birth? Is it yes. the Home Secretary? Every, ro- oh, every royal wow. birth, not every birth. <laughs> <laughs> that would be... <laughs> It might not be the Home Secretary. It's someone. No, it is. It is. It is the Home Secretary. Yeah. Who's the current Home Secretary? Pretty Patel. Pretty Patel. Oh man! (laughs) Imagine if she had to go around to every single birth in the country. But she would be saying, "Get back in there. Get back in there. Don't want you. Don't want you. Go on. Back up. You go." I love that idea that you would sort of shame people in history via children telling rhymes. We don't do that so much these days. Like <laughs> no. that would be that'd be an incredible satirical kids program where it's just us shaming politicians and so on with new songs that we put out. It seems there to was have stopped. a nursery rhyme when I was a kid, which was called Maggie Thatcher Sticker in the Bin. So oh, in a way, yeah. it still does continue that there will wow. be. They'll probably sing Boris Johnson Stick You in the Bin now. What it'll that be any like? prime minister. Um, Maggie, Thatcher. Maggie Thatcher sticker in the bin. Put the lid on, sell the taper in. That's it. And I remember when um, when she actually resigned as prime minister, they came in and told us in the classroom, and we all sang it. Really? Wow! Yeah. wow. I think we're about eight. <laughs> we had also Maggie Thatcher milk snatcher kind of a little rhyme mm-hmm. about that, didn't oh, we? Yeah. Hey, just very quickly for international listeners, and I include myself slightly in this because I'm not au fait with uh, the British monarchy's history, but Queen Anne um, was a queen from her birth date was 1665 to 1714. And there's not really been much about her. She's She's not one of the more popular people for pop culture, except for the fact that she had the movie The Favourite, which Mm. was a fairly recent one, which Olivia Colman won the Oscar for the portrayal of her. But outside of that, she kind of slips through the cracks a bit in terms of uh, people's knowledge about her. And the only stuff that really comes through is all this quite shaming sort of information about her. People attacking her for her looks and her hygiene and all the accounts of her body size and so on. It was claimed that when she passed away, 14 men had to carry her uh, for her burial. And I don't know if this stuff is true. I don't know if this is part of the shaming of her, but that's kind of what we know about her. It's 100% true that she did have health problems and that she she was definitely a large lady. She had a lot of gout. She really struggled with that. Um, but there was definitely also a lot of, um, she, she had a lot of enemies. Um, for instance, this thing at uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, it was a Thanksgiving ceremony after the war. They just finished a war with either France or Spain. Or Spanish like succession, that. wasn't it? Spanish succession. Yeah. I trust you to know that, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably just throw out some half-remembered facts and then you can just fill in the gaps today, maybe. <laughs> Um, but they built they built stands along the side of the strand, and they had four thousand children singing patriotic songs while they walked down to St Paul's Cathedral. Wow. Um, but a lot of people weren't really happy with it because they thought that Queen Anne was secretly trying to get the Jacobites back onto the English throne, and that she was kind of slightly sympathetic to the Catholics. Uh, and so there was, I mean, it was a real kind of time where the monarchy was losing a lot of its power and parliament was kind of coming in and i think that's why we don't hear much about her it got called the age of party um wow that sounds that, cool 
Well, yeah, it was. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was the age of the Whigs and the Tories as opposed to everyone having a good time. <laughs> I was thinking it was, it was Gatsby style. <laughs> <laughs> poor, poor time travellers who read that sentence go, let's go there. <laughs> Everybody stank and there were no parties. Right. <laughs> Nursery rhymes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Now, the, 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 there always seems to be, James has mentioned, there's, there's a lot of debunked stories about the origins of nursery rhymes. And I'm sure that some of them have been retconned into the, the nursery rhymes themselves. I mean, mm. there's there's... The Grand Old Duke of York is clearly about a failed military campaign, but there is about a dozen different ideas mm. of who it's talking about. Um, Who's the current Duke of York? Uh, oh, I don't remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Pop Goes the Weasel. I really like that one. Pop Goes I love the Pop Weasel. Goes the Weasel. That one actually is nursery. about Prince Andrew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, no one really knows what it means, what Pop Goes the Weasel There's is. a lot of Cockney rhyming slang in there, though, and there references to the City Road and, and the Eagle on the City Road, which is actually still there, the, the pub. It is, and uh, it has like a, a sign pub. on the side of the building, doesn't it, with the nursery rhyme on it. Oh, um, wow. but yeah. Yeah, so weasel could be your weasel and stoat, your throat. So mm. it's like, ah, get it down, your weasel, mate, when you give someone a pint of beer. Right. Get it down, your weasel. Or your, your weasel uh, could be a coat. So there's an, an idea mm. that it's about putting your coat into the pawn shop to to pay off, you know, all your debts. And oh. anytime a new expense comes in, pop goes the weasel. Ah, oh, there goes your coat again. Yeah. So um yeah, it's 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 a re good cockney knees up. But basically. what I really like about it is in the eighteen fifties it was like a dance craze, Pop Goes the Weasel. So if you were a time traveller and you wanted to find a real good party, then you want to go to 1850s London because you're going to know the dance. You're going to absolutely smash it. <laughs> you can go into your music hall and you just dance around and then at the end of it, everyone shouts out, pop goes the weasel. And that's kind of the big sort of wow. ending of every verse. And it was absolutely wow. massive. Um, the baby was... shark of its day. So adults <laughs> yes. were doing this. Adults were doing it, yeah. It was um, there was an advertisement in the Bath Chronicle in 1853 um, that offered instruction to the highly fashionable dance of Pop Goes the Weasel. So wow. people would you could pay people to teach you how to do the Pop Goes the Weasel dance, and That's even cool. then, no one really knew what it meant. It was just like a nonsense phrase, really. But yeah, yeah it's just it, well, it's like it's like us loving the Macarena. I don't know what the hell that means, but it's you know, <laughs> oh, I sing it, not. I dance it, Macarena, Macarena, you know, I haven't dedicated myself to understanding the lyrics. I think it's about a lady called Macarena. It's about a lady whose husband has gone away and she's um, courting all the other local boys um, because her husband or her boyfriend isn't there anymore. Mm. Well, 500 years from now, people will be saying, actually, the Macarena is about... <laughs> actually, it's about Brexit. <laughs> um, I love, do you guys remember the one that goes, uh, do your ears hang low, do they wobble to and throw yeah. that kid song? We said, so, can you tie them in a bow? I think. Yeah, can you tie them in? And, and actually, I think it was, do your boobs hang low, not do your ears well, hang low. So, I think it's do your balls hang low. Do your balls and do your boobs are the are the sort of the rude versions of it. Um, but the assumption is, is that it was the kids' song, do your ears hang low, and then when you got sort of rude kids at school going, have you heard this version, you would sing it. Mm. Anyway, it turns out that the original versions were do your balls hang low and do your boobs hang low, and then it got sort of turned into a more presentable for kids, do your ears hang low. So it was sung in war time during world war one on the western front um they would be singing it in the trenches do your balls hang low it's to and the then yeah the sailor's hornpipe yeah right do yeah your balls hang low can you swing them to and fro can you tie them in a knot can you tie them in a bow can you tuck them <laughs> to the ceiling with that free and easy feeling anyway it goes <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> it's really... I, i've never heard that version i don't think no, that's, that's, that's the only one i i learned that one as a child yeah these things just stay with you don't they Along with, you know, Margaret Thatcher, she's our hero. So <laughs> <laughs> Came yes, we went to very different schools. Gave everyone in the classroom a black armband when she resigned. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard of Telltale Tit? This yeah. is a really yeah. short one. Telltale tit, your tongue shall be slit and all the dogs in the town shall have a little bit. Yeah. So I'd never heard that before. It's, but it's very common in Bolton, I can yeah. say. Oh, all really? the dogs in Bolton will have a little bit. But I just think that's amazing. It's because it's basically a children's equivalent of saying snitches get stitches. Yeah. Yeah. 
Tom but, tells uh, yeah. it. Your tongue will split, cool. and all the little doggies will have a little bit. That's what you used to say. It's terrifying. Uh, do you guys know pissabed? No. <laughs> goes pissabed, pissabed, barley butt. Your bum is so heavy you can't get up. And <laughs> this was this was published in the very first um, nursery rhyme songbook that was printed in Britain in 1744. It's the first time that Baba Black Sheep was ever printed in a um, in a nursery rhyme book. So it was called Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook. And we thought there was only one copy that was left, which was held, I think, in the British uh, Library. But one went up for auction a few years ago. Um, so there might be a couple more out there. But it had 40 nursery rhymes in it and all the classics, Bar Bar Black Sheep, Hickory Dickory Dock, uh, London wow. Bridge is Falling Down, Merry Merry Quite Contrary, Sing a Song <laughs> of Sixpence, and then Piss a Bed. Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook. They were actually all about Pretty Patel, weren't they? That was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's where that name came from. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that in 1862, there was a special cravat invented to stop people strangling you in the street. Wow. Mm. <laughs> this is, uh... So if I went to strangle you, Andy, with yeah. this, my yeah. hands go for your neck. Oh, is yeah. It, is it that the cravat is so full of folds and so on, I can never actually find your neck? How's it it's work? It's a real pencil neck, yeah. No, it's um, it's got spikes on the inside, so you could go for the neck, but on you the get inside. a pretty naughty... Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the spikes are on the outside. Oh, right, okay. Concealed by a layer of cloth. Yeah, yeah don't put that on the wrong way around. <laughs> no, you're yeah. right, you're right, you're right. Sorry, they're on the outside, but they're cleverly concealed by the ruffles at the front of the cravat. And wow. um, so, Dan, as soon as you... You'd probably try and put your thumbs around my windpipe. Nice try, mate. Uh, you're going to get a spiky thumb. Um, <laughs> I also read that um, some of them had razor blades sewn into the folds as well. Yeah, so wow. pretty intense uh, items of clothing. And these were designed to fight the menace of garrottings because there was mm. a panic. In fact, there, weren't, there, were, there were two panics in the mid-19th century about garrottings, one in 1856, and then it sort of flared up again in 1862. And there was this massive panic about actually a relatively small crime wave of people being mugged. Uh, and the, the method of mugging was someone would grab someone around the throat and then their accomplice would rob them. And um, Yeah, I should this, just say, yeah. like, a garrotting to me is like you get some cheese wire or something. Like in, mm. in a movie, they would get some wire and they would put it around your throat. But this was actually more like putting someone in a sleeper hold in like a wrestling move, wasn't it? Than... Yeah, oh, yeah. Right. I mean, it could definitely, it could hurt you very mm. badly. Oh, and yeah. it could, could absolutely, it could kill you as well. I don't think very many people at all were actually killed by this. Um, but it led to a change in the law. The parliament passed the 1863 Garotters Act, uh, and, yeah, this was a but big panic. There is an argument that not only did not many people die of this, no people died of it, and it was completely <laughs> made up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's an argument yeah. that it was completely made up by newspapers. So there was an MP who got um, mugged. He was called Hugh Pilkington, and he had his mm. pocket watch stolen. And they said that he was garroted when they stole his watch, but actually it seems like he wasn't really... And then basically newspapers started calling any minor incident. They said, oh, this was a garrotting. <laughs> and then some of the um, magistrates would say that it was a garrotting, even though it wasn't, because they knew that the person would get more time or a, a stronger punishment for it. Mm. Uh, and then after the 1863 Act, there was no more garrottings. But the argument among historians, a lot of them, is that there were never any in the first place. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's very much, what's it in The Simpsons, where it's like, this rock scares away tigers or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there were descriptions of how it worked. Mm. So it would be a three-person gang, which consisted of a front stall, a back stall, and the nasty man. Okay, so... <laughs> Tag the, yourself. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think the front stall distracts you. He stops you and says, oh, excuse me, do you have the time? And then the back stall is the lookout who's making sure there are no police coming along. And the nasty man is the one who actually does the garroting. Yeah, um, I could have worked that out. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was another thing you could buy. In 1858, a guy called Henry Ball invented a pistol worn on your back which would discharge into a criminal's crotch. 
I love so this. That would wow. go, I suppose that would go for the back man, would it? Or, okay. Yeah, that would Nasty be to man. take the back stall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, no, the grotto, the grotto is going round you with the sleeper, uh, yeah. right? So he's oh, good point. So behind. that's for the nasty man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's nasty man. Wow. Um, I think I can't believe <laughs> on, this was on. a real did thing. Work? Did that work? Did I anyone? I'm not sure any of this stuff was. No, I don't... this is a real thing. It was real. For Sorry, yeah. it was real, but I don't think mm. everyone was wearing them. You know, it was right. kind of. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Imagine but... that you're going out just to the local pub. You're wearing spikes around your neck. You've got a pistol <laughs> facing backwards. I mean, Jesus, what a but look. I, this gun sounds amazing because it looks just like a little belt pack, doesn't it? Mm. And you, But the thing is, obviously, you had guns weren't that advanced yet. So apparently you had to reach back to cock the hammer of the gun. And then you had to kind of pull a ripcord at your waistline, which would actually fire the gun and fire a lead ball into your attacker's It would be recoil. Midriff. Like normally recoil goes in one direction, but if it's firing there, you would just be kind of thrusting your crotch forward, wouldn't you? Like whenever <laughs> you fired this... Gun. Yeah, you would get blasted into the front stall. So you're a kind of human cannonball. <laughs> Back, the nasty man's nowhere to be seen. <laughs> it's so amazing. The Henry Ball belt pistol. I love it. Oh, you could just hire some bodyguards to yeah. walk yeah. you to and from the pub, like the, the Bayswater brothers who advertised. Um, the Bayswater brothers, whose height is respectively six feet four inches and six feet eleven, and the united breadth of whose shoulders extends to as much as three yards one foot five inches, give respectfully notice to the gentry and public of Paddington, Kensington, Stoke Newington, Chelsea, Eaton Square, and Shepherd's Bush that they will be most happy upon all social and jovial expeditions to escort elderly or nervous persons in the streets after dark. Wow, that is great. They sound great. Uh, so they they'd served several months in the police force, and uh, they would. They would go through any neighbourhood, even the worst garrotting districts well known. Yeah, but they don't go south of the river, do they? It's <laughs> typical. It's just like cabbies all over again. No, garrotting <laughs> south of the river. Wow. <laughs> um, some more kind of panics. Um, oh, yeah. Because I'm, oh, yeah. I'm saying that this garrotting wasn't really a thing. It might yeah. have been a thing, but that's the kind of angle. I'm it's taking. definitely a way smaller thing than uh, the 1863 Garotters Act would suggest. <laughs> <laughs> in um, 1954, a lot of people in Seattle were really worried because there were loads of holes in their windscreens and everyone was going out looking at their car and they find little holes and they didn't know what had happened. They thought it was vandals. They thought it might have been fallout from nuclear tests that were happening to be honest, not that close to Seattle, but they thought that maybe it was that. Uh, and then a load of scientists were brought in and they looked at what had happened. And it turned out that these pits were there all along, but it was just happened that in that year, 1954, someone noticed it and then everyone else went, oh my God, I've got that as well. Oh my God, I've got that as well. <laughs> That's very funny. That's so yeah, weird. Have the, um, in 1788, have the London Monster. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, who was a guy who went around basically stabbing ladies in the in the skirt area, um, ripping their clothes. Uh, sometimes he'd be presenting them with flowers and there'd be something sharp concealed within them. Oh, no. Um, yeah, it was it was a disgrace, um, but it probably didn't happen. Uh, oh, okay, <laughs> there were, roller coaster. There were, there were up to 50 women reported to the police that they'd been attacked, and it was later proven that some of some of these women had inflicted wounds themselves. You know, they were just scratched or they just ripped the dress. But somebody did get convicted. Uh, a woman was attacked in the January, I think, of 1790, um, and she saw a guy in the park six months later, got a boyfriend to follow him home. It was this um, ex-ballet dancer who now made artificial flowers, <laughs> this Welsh guy, okay. um, oh. who got up before the beak and they found out that the worst offence they could charge him with was actually was damaging Welsh. clothes. All right. <laughs> 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 Apparently the damaging, damaging clothes under the law at the time because they were expensive foreign clothes oh, yeah. came with a harsher penalty than actually injuring these women, attempting wow. murder and stabbing. Wow. Um, so eventually this guy got six years. But it, mysteriously, there were no attacks after that, even oh, though okay. he probably wasn't the attacker. But during, Wait, but you... during a two-year period, women started wearing copper pans under their petticoats as a form of really? self-defence against the London monster. So there is a, there's a James heavy. Gilray engraving 
of um of the monster attacking a woman and he pulls up a skirt and uh there's just a pan there so he's disappointed yeah well you would be hang on, <laughs> hang on. yeah did, <laughs> did you say this was 1788 that this was happening 1788 it started yeah that, to 1790 i didn't think there were people making artificial flowers in the 17 17- 80s? Yeah, they'd be yeah. made of silk, I would guess, rather than... I, yeah, I know, just sort of assumed that stuff. they were a thing from the 70s onwards, like kind of <laughs> like plastic or... I can't believe that. Is I that what you got out main... of that story, Andy? <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently, yes. In the earliest, earliest days of this podcast, I mentioned a fact about the precursor to the London monster, which was a man who used to go around London and he would slap women on the bum and then he would run off. And as he ran off, he would yell, Spanko! And... <laughs> I think he was called Whipping Tom or something like that. Can I just say with that, I think in that case, if you had a copper pan in your petticoats, then it Mm. would have the opposite effect because it would make a really nice resonant sound if you spanked someone and they had like a a copper Mm. pot there, wouldn't it? That's true. (laughs) Like playing the timpani. That would be like the J. Arthur Rank symbol at the beginning of films, wouldn't it? (laughs) It's just Spanko running on, hitting a petticoat and running off. (laughs) So was he caught, Dan? Was he caught? Do we know? Do we know who the real Spanko, Spanko was? Oh, Spanko! No, I, I don't know any. Any, I just, that's an old memory. As Jenny mm. was talking about the London Monster, he was a precursor. But um, yeah, amazing character, the London Monster, um, and huge panic off the back of that. Oh yeah, if when, if James Gilray's doing engravings of you, then you know you've made it. Really. Yeah. I don't know James Gilray. Was he was he Mr. Engraver back then? Oh, he was Mr. You know, your political cartoons. Those right. are all those are all him. You know, he's the the Steve Bell of his day. I didn't know who wow. he was either, but I thought by keeping quiet people would assume that I did. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely, definitely one hundred percent seen his work. Okay. Yeah. They're all the really big, complicated drawings where people have to be labelled quite precisely. So, you know, there's a brilliant engraving. I'm just making this up now, but, you know, there'll be a monkey in a hot air balloon. But the monkey has to be labelled Britain's response to the Eritrean. <laughs> and, and the balloon is labelled uh, European integration after the 1763 Act. Of, like, oh, I, I don't get this at all. <laughs> <laughs> but back in the day, people have one glance at it like, yeah, I've got it. That's brilliant. Cool. Hilarious. Yeah. The man's a genius. Yeah. Okay, it's time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that for 24 years, any ship travelling between Wellington and Nelson in New Zealand would be guided through the most dangerous section by a dolphin called Pelorus Jack. <laughs> I should have done that in a pirate voice, shouldn't I? Would be... <laughs> Guided through the most dangerous (laughs) section by a dolphin called Pelorus Jack. Is that better? No. (laughs) I couldn't couldn't tell the difference. (laughs) (laughs) So, James, what on earth is this? This is a fact. Um, Okay. Perhaps. So, (laughs) (laughs) at the north end of New Zealand's South Island, there's a little stretch of water. Uh, It's really, really perilous. Um, It's called the French Pass. Uh, and there are loads of really bad currents uh, and high waves, and it can be really difficult to get through. And at the turn of the 20th century, uh, any boat that was going through there would always have this dolphin alongside it. Now, whether the dolphin was deliberately helping the humans across, <laughs> or whether it was just being a dolphin and <laughs> kind of swimming in the wake of a boat, like dolphins often do. We don't know. Well, we do know, because it didn't even know it was a dolphin. It was just a go- <laughs> But what is but true... But it was there. It was there, It right? was there, and people believed that that's what was happening. So people were writing at the time. There's articles from 1905, 1906, where people said they were on this boat, and the dolphin was acting as a pilot for the ships, and that it would take them deliberately into the areas where the water was deeper, because it knew there would be less chance of the boat being um, smashed on the rocks. And then some people didn't like the dolphin being there and some people shot at it. On one particular time when someone shot this dolphin, there was a law that came up that said you are specifically not allowed to shoot this particular dolphin in (laughs) New Zealand. And it was the first sea creature to be protected by law anywhere in the Mm. world. I mean, with between this and the 1863 Garotas Act, it does feel like legislators had a lot more time on their hands back in the day. 
But so the story goes that the um, the boat, the ship that shot at uh, Jack was called the SS Penguin. Mm. And the story goes that he disappeared and he came back later. But five years later, the SS Penguin struck rocks and sank and 75 passengers perished. Um, and they, they, as the story goes, it's because Jack, when he saw the SS Penguin coming, would ignore it. He, he knew that that was the boat that shot him. And so maybe without his help, that's what led to it being slammed into the rocks. It's a great story. I, I love it. it. <laughs> Pelorus is a really weird name because I thought when you said that the French passed, this strait of water was very perilous, I yeah. thought, oh, maybe it's a version of that. I don't think it's it is. Not, it's, no. it's, a, it's a ship's instrument or something? Uh, there was a, a ship called the um, HMS Perilous, mm. um, and uh, there's a, a Pelorus, sorry, and it kind of went around that area of New Zealand and Australia, so there's a Pelorus Island as well, and a few different mm. things named after Pelorus, which was this, um, this discovery ship. Mm. Okay. But Pelorus was also the name of Hannibal's pilot. So that may be where it comes from. Hannibal, oh, really? Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, Hannibal Lecter needed a pilot to. <laughs> well, take you've him got a, to you've got to have a private pilot. You're busy. You're a busy man. These livers aren't going to cook themselves. <laughs> Do you mean Hannibal, as in the ha- Hannibal, as the the elephant dude? The elephant dude. Carthaginian the general dude. <laughs> now sounds like we're talking about the elephant man, who is a different person to Hannibal. <laughs> Now, Elephant Dew would definitely be the name of Hannibal's YouTube channel. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to try and take some elephants and invade Rome next week. It's going to be completely crazy. Uh, Hit like and subscribe to see if it works. (laughs) But yeah, there was, um, when I sent this fact round, Andy, you you found an article that said that perhaps it wasn't real and that the fact that the people thought that dolphin was guiding people was Mm. invented quite a few years later. Um, but um, I found an article from April 1905 where there was a guy called Mr. Generous Hayes um, who said that... <laughs> no, not... Definitely not made up. Yeah. <laughs> what, what date in April, James? <laughs> it was the 29th of April, but this story had come all the way from Australia, so it could definitely take 28 <laughs> days to get to the um, Central Somerset Gazette, which is where I read it. Um, but he wow. said that um, that Jack acts as a most effective pilot, escorting all kinds of vessels in and out of the French Pass. Yeah, and he was sort of globally famous. There's stories of Mark Twain specifically going on that route to see him. And, wow. Yeah, and, and other the, the, an English author called Frank T. Bullen as well. Um, both had written about it. So, yeah, I think the contentious thing is, was he piloting them or was he just having fun? Um, But but there's photos and so on. I must say, every time I read that, I read that in a few places and it always said, well-known figures such as Mark Twain and English author Frank T. Bullard. And I always thought, (laughs) one of those I have heard of, for sure. (laughs) I saw, uh, when I saw New Zealand, I obviously got in touch with my friend who's a, a, a... an expat Kiwi, Amy, oh. and I messaged her and and I said, have you heard of Pelorus Jack? And she went, oh my God, I love him. He's a celebrity dolphin in New Zealand. And I was like, oh. a celebrity dolphin? And there's more than one celebrity <laughs> dolphin in New Zealand. It's a thing. And they all wow. have statues. So yes, there's um, really? Oppo, who um, was famous in New Zealand during the summer of 1955 to 56, because he played with children. Um, and very soon after, um, had become stranded and died. So well, his name, his, his full name was Apony Jack. Was yeah, it? Yeah, Apony Jack, oh, named wow. after Pelorus Jack himself, because wow. that's he's the archetype of celebrity dolphins in New Zealand, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then Mocco came around in, in uh, 2006 to wow. uh, do a similar kind of thing. But, you know, neither of them was that useful. They weren't guiding. They were just kind of into humans. So became oh, no. quite no, Mok- famous. Mokko was, um, was a guide on one famous occasion because, um, again, another Kiwi dolphin. Um, in 2008, there were two pygmy sperm whales who were trapped. I think they were trapped between uh, the beach and a, a sandbank that mm. had built up. They didn't know what to do. And the, the authorities were saying, oh, well, should we kill them? Because they, otherwise they're going to really suffer and they might die. And Mocko the dolphin um, led them out through a narrow channel at the end of the uh, sandbag that they were in. So there was a bit of water that was just deep enough to get these whales through. So it, obviously it became a huge celebrity. Uh, and then it all went to his head and he started... Um, Doing a lot sexually, of cocaine. 
Well, he started sexually assaulting swimmers. Oh, and dear. I know it, it is, you know, celebrity Classic. excess. He started making what was called amorous advances to women in the water. And also just being a bit of a thug, he started tipping over water skiers. And I can't believe this, but apparently stealing surfers' surfboards. Now, I don't <laughs> know what, I, I can't envisage how a dolphin does that. <laughs> Why do you need to? You, you're well, already quite proficient <laughs> in the water. <laughs> I mean... For a dolphin, a surfboard might be like a hoverboard for a human. Like, he might... Oh, if, yeah. Can you imagine if you're a dolphin and one of your mates comes along and he's just kind of lying on a surfboard? That That's guy true. is he's chilling. Cool. Okay, so James is trying to justify Mocco's crime wave. And, uh... <laughs> you Mocco apologist. <laughs> But he still has a statue, though. They oh, really? are blooming statues, yeah. Wow. Oh, Got to commemorate your local celebrity dolphin. That didn't get pulled down in the whole recent... <laughs> <laughs> it might be re-evaluated. <laughs> um, you know who also seems to be into New Zealand dolphins is the Scottish. So it's just a very curious thing, but... <laughs> Perilous, Perilous Jack was turned into a song and a dance in Scotland. And so there's there's a song that goes, and I don't know the, the music to it, but a famous fish there used to be called Perilous Jack. He'd always swim far out to sea when a ship came back. And this got turned into a dance which you could do. And there's a, there's a move called the dolphin hay, which I guess is a bit like the pop goes the weasel. It's sort of like a, it's a, it's a dolphin move. Um, so that was turned into a dance, and there's a full dance routine about Pelorus Jack. But also Oppo, who we were talking about, in 1994 was also turned into a, into a Scottish dance as well. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. So you can, if you go to Scotland, likely there are people who know two New Zealand dolphin dancers. Well, I've, Dan, I've got some ins with the Scottish country dancing community. Oh, yeah. And I can confirm there's no shortage of things they've named dances after. There are so many hundreds of dances. <laughs> really? That... Uh, you, are they just going through Wikipedia on random <laughs> pages and going, okay, well, I'm going to do this after George Washington High School in Milwaukee? <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing the number of things they have done to oh. after. But yeah, it's, it's the, cool. I think it must be an extension of the nursery rhyme thing. So Scottish country dancing has taken up the yeah. mantle. Have you ever done any Scottish country dancing? Andy? What, me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've done a bit. Yeah, it's it's great. It's really, really fun. Do you know the dolphin hay? I don't know the dolphin hay, no. I'm not off the top of your head. There are but... thousands of dances, Dan. <laughs> it's not entry level anyway. No, absolutely dolphin not. Hay. That's a dashing white sergeant is the first thing you learn. I think you have to be pretty, you have to be balls deep before you're learning <laughs> dolphin hay off by heart. Did you, um, did you do country dancing at school? No, I didn't. Jenny, I, did I, you? Um, I, I remember a couple of sessions of it when the the they didn't have a PE teacher. <laughs> Emergency country dance. It was raining, and so a teacher who happened to know some country dancing. Oh, okay. So you didn't have a dance instructor who'd been kept in a cupboard for years and years and years <laughs> until the PE teacher fell ill. Because when I was at primary school, so Jenny and I went to the same secondary school, but when I was at primary school, we did country dancing every week. Wow. Was, it, was it English country dancing you were doing? Uh, it's like Morris dancing, I guess. It's oh, like, okay. all I remember is that you had to do -si do your partner. That's yeah, kind that's of, all yeah. I remember. Yeah, All I remember is do -si do There is one dance that's an English country dance, and that's English country dancing is a bit rarer for whatever reason. There are still loads of dancers, but they just mm. don't get danced as much because they're all from, you know, Jane Austen's time. But there's one which is called Mr. Beveridge's Maggot. <laughs> it's my favourite <laughs> name of a dance. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's <laughs> and what happens at the end of that? Um... I don't know. I don't know if this was named after an actual maggot that was um, like a celebrity maggot in Regency <laughs> Agent, which saved a carriage from crashing or whatever. Um, um, I don't know where to go from there. Um, dolphins? <laughs> Let's talk about dolphins. Yeah. Yes. Um, one thing that dolphins do, which I didn't know, is that they can wear gloves over their noses. Okay. So, <laughs> what? This is amazing. They, they, Andy. Yeah. Is this a real glove over nose, or is this an analogy for a glove over nose? Because Sarah Pascoe called us out last week, if you remember, uh, about yeah. um, this ladybird bought a hat, and then oh, it's no. never an actual. It's never an actual hat. It's some... oh my god! I've fallen right into the Pascoe ladybird hat trap. Because this, <laughs> no, it's not a glove. It's not a glove. Obviously, it's not a glove. What is it? They. So you know, marine sponges. 
yeah. sort of... Yeah, the, yeah. They, the, they're animals, technically, aren't they? The sponges are yeah. very simple animals. They kind of um, pick up these sponges and they press them onto the end of their snouts. And then when they're foraging, they're using their snout and they are probing for prey, sometimes under the surface of the sea. But there can be sharp things there. And so these sponges on their noses act as a kind of um, bit of protective equipment, if you like, um, to stop them hurting themselves when they're jamming around there. And they particularly mm. pick conical sponges because they can jam them more easily wow. onto the end of their noses. They're that nice. That's cool. Yeah. I think, cool. I think glove is acceptable for that because that's basically you. their hand <laughs> and they're putting something over the hand so they can go riffling about in things. So, yeah. I'll, I'll accept yeah. it. I'm not going to pasco you on this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If if James hadn't called Andy out just then, I would be at parties going, you know they wear marigolds on their face? <laughs> so, um, dolphins can talk to each other on the telephone. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> I think we all want to pasco you on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a, there was an aquarium in Hawaii where they had the mother in a separate tank to a two year old uh, calf dolphin, and they they organised a audio link between the two tanks and got them chatting to each other. And the calls and responses were in line with the kind of wow. calls and responses you would hear in the wild, even though they couldn't see each other. And they they don't know what they said. We've spoken about there's hmm. a dolphin dictionary uh, that they're working on at the moment, scientists, but. We do know that they were call and responses that were happening, and it's it's sort of it, they think the conversation was like, "Hey, what's your name? Oh, my name's this. Oh, great. Um, there's lots of fish here. Oh, that's good to know." Um, yeah. So wow, they can okay. they can chat over the phone. Okay, actually, again, sounded unreasonable, but I think that's completely legit. They can chat over the phone. They just they can't dial and they can't, you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> They'd have to take the glove off to dial, obviously. <laughs> Um, so also dolphins can attack enemies of the Soviet Union. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. Because um, that's the thing, isn't it? Dolphins, they, um, they are trained in various mm-hmm. armies. The Americans have done it and the Soviets did it. Their first use of dolphins by the Navy was in 1970 in Vietnam, where they were put on guard duty um, for wow. the Americans. Was that river dolphins or was it uh, sea-going dolphins? That's a really good point. I don't know about that. No, it's actually the least relevant part of the most amazing <laughs> fact I've ever heard, obviously. I mean, the dolphins fought in Nam is a more interesting fact than whether they were river or ocean dolphins. <laughs> but you do get river dolphins in Vietnam. Yeah, or you, used you to. do. I suspect there'd be river dolphins there because it was, you know, it's the Mekong Delta and all that. Yeah. So I'm guessing there would be mm. guarding certain um, entry and exit points. The thing is, Andy, you always ask the questions that the people at home are all thinking. <laughs> Um, and the Soviet Union uh, they used their uh, dolphin guards they would carry a titanium clamp on their nose which was about the size of a ping pong ball uh, and you would they would attach it to a diver that they found and they um, the little kind of thing would report back and tell you where that person is so you'd be able to find them um and if they couldn't find them, eventually the ping pong ball thing would inject a high pressure charge of CO2 into the diver's body. Oh, um, which could kill so them. this is a, an enemy diver, is it? Well, like a, a US diver or whatever. That's the idea, yeah. To tag them. And then, God. And again, I don't know exactly what species of dolphin that was. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show. That is my fact. My fact this week is that the Arthur Conan Doyle estate is currently suing Netflix for showing Sherlock Holmes as having feelings and respecting women. (laughs) (laughs) So this is... This is really interesting. So uh, Netflix is making um, a movie called Enola Holmes, and it is the story of the teenage sister of Sherlock Holmes, and Sherlock Holmes appears as a character in it. And in the show, they show him as having sort of not sociopath uh, qualities that we know Sherlock to have, but to be warmer and gentler. And the Conan Doyle state is claiming they are unable to represent him like that because, yes, even though Sherlock does have those feelings, he did eventually sort of respect women and um, become a nicer character. He only became that in the last 10 stories that were written by Conan Doyle. And it just so happens that those 10 stories are the only stories that are still in copyright and belong to the Conan Doyle Mm. estate. 
So anyone who wants to use the ad of copyright has to use the more mean, misogynistic homes, and they're fine. But if you want to show him being a nice guy, you're going to be sued. Wow. <laughs> so there's a few other things that you're not allowed to, um, or if you do show Sherlock having these characteristics, then you have to pay them, pay the family. So if you show Holmes and Watson having a genuine friendship, Right. That's in copyright. If you show his uh, love of nature, that is. And if you ever show him liking dogs, that's in copyright. <laughs> <laughs> so if you ever make it, I'm just going to say this to everyone out there. If you're making your own version of Sherlock Holmes, make sure that he doesn't like dogs whenever you do. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah I guess the Hound of the Baskervilles is out of copyright, <laughs> yeah. in which he doesn't like dogs. No. No, it's quite you're right. right. And the thing is, if you are going to make something where he does like dogs and respects women, all you need to do actually is wait two or three more years because oh. that is, we're in the final years of them owning this copyright. I think that's why they're trying to rake in as much money yeah. as possible because they're about to lose it entirely. Um, but these stories obviously have, you know, he wrote them over a lifetime. Mm. So there's a bit of spread on when the copyright ends. And the final batch, these final 10 were written after he returned from World War One, and he lost his brother in the war, he lost his eldest son, and he came back and he was a different man. And he thought, I want to reflect that in Sherlock. And so that's why there was this sudden change in the oh. uh, attitude of Sherlock. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I got deep into the legalese of all this because, you know, that's that's my uh, my background. So there's, there's actually an infight between the Conan Doyle Estate Limited and Arthur Conan Doyle's literary estate, both of whom claim to have the copyright of those stories. Oh. And it's actually the Conan Doyle Estate Limited is the litigious um, one of those oh. two. And so they're, they are described by the literary estate as copyright trolls, which is wow. a whole new term. Really? So um, tracing it back, the, the way that the story is told by the literary estate is that um, all the rights were sold um, after Conan Doyle's death because the, his, the three inheriting children, so it's two, two daughters and the widow of his son, um, had uh, they, they couldn't agree on anything. So they all sold to the widow. Mm. Um, and from then on, she, you know, she went bankrupt and the rights were acquired by someone else. It was acquired by someone else. And so that they traced that route back. In 2000-ish, when EU copyright law started to, to indicate that there wasn't much money left to be squeezed out in Europe of the literary copyright, that's when Conan Doyle Estate Limited, which is some descendants of Conan Doyle himself, decided to put the squeeze on some oh. uh, some of the studios who are interested in his work so they they basically they went and threatened Warner Brothers when they made the uh, Robert Downey Jr versions oh. um and because you know in those films you know he's he's got a romance with Irene Adler there's there's all yeah, that yeah, sort of stuff that would dogs. come under the the sort of stipulations <laughs> and uh, the, the, I, I think um, it would be fair to threaten those filmmakers, actually, at the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> oh, The Game of Shadows movie. No, no, no I think people, that's fair. The people no. you want to you wanna threaten are the people who made Holmes and Watson. What? Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, this is Dan's favourite film, the Will <laughs> so Ferrell funny. Sherlock Holmes. It's so good. Yeah, but so good. In, nowhere in, in Holmes is he bloody hilarious. No, I think true. Oh, there true. you go. So I that's that's true. actually more of a divergence from the original text, and I'm guessing that that studio paid them off. Mm. Um, do you know the um, obviously the very famous quote, "Elementary, my dear Watson." Um, it never never said in any of the written work of Conan Doyle's. Um, so it's a line that came much later, but. There's someone who runs a site called Quote Investigator who's written a fantastic article about trying to find the very first instances where we use elementary My Dear Watson. And the oldest that he could find was 1901, the Northampton Mercury. They published a short parody featuring the characters Shylock Combs and Potson. And it is in that <laughs> wow. that the line, elementary My Dear Potson, is set. <laughs> wow. Then in 1902... There was a piece that was written about Dr. Joseph Bell. Now, Dr. Joseph Bell is someone who it is claimed was the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. He was a doctor who could walk around and look at you on site and pick out what was wrong with you by just simply staring at you, which is a, a thing mm. that Sherlock is famous for doing. 
And in this article, the person writing it says, as the remarkable man would say, it is the merest elementary knowledge, my dear Watson. So that's the second closest that we get to it. Yeah, but yeah, no one can find it in the actual canon itself of official Sherlock writings. I think if it was there, people would have found it, right? Because mm. people do take <laughs> yes. these books very seriously. You're um, right. You get and they're people. all digital now. There's a search term. You can do <laughs> it's a search, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I've got a uh, just a recommendation of an extraordinary real-life story to do with Sherlock and Conan Doyle okay. that is worth reading. Um, so it's written by a guy called David Gran. Um, and the story, it was published in The New Yorker and it was called Mysterious Circumstances. So basically one of the leading Sherlock Holmes experts in the world living in Britain was found dead in his room, in his house, with um, no break-in. No one could work out how anyone got out because, but there was just one body in there. So this turned in itself into a Sherlock Holmes-style mystery. How did the leading expert of Sherlock Holmes die? It was a guy called Richard Lancelin Green. He was the son of Roger Lancelin Green, who wrote the King Arthur fables in their modern version, the most famous version that we would all know. And um, yeah, so it's extraordinary. He was found death by garroting, by the way. Oh, yeah. Hello. And what year hello. was this? Did you say the year, Dan? No, um, it, well, he wrote about it in 2004, and it wasn't much long before that that this story oh, okay. happened. Um, Did he yeah. have one of those guns that shoots people in the crotch? Because then <laughs> I'm just kind um, of trying to channel my inner Sherlock Holmes here. Yeah, it could. I mean, I know the answer to the story, but it's, yeah, it's not that. <laughs> but that, um, that doctor, what was he called? Dr. Bell. Bell. Yeah, he could Joseph tell Bell. just by looking at you if you'd been shot in the crotch. <laughs> <laughs> This man is a garrotter. He's a nasty man. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Carry on. No, no. I think that's all that I'd like to give in terms of details. It's an extraordinary Sorry. mystery. Sherlock expert found garrotted. Yeah, in a locked room mystery. And he's the only person in the room. No one knows who killed him. There was a big paranoia on his part in the lead up to his death about people wanting to kill him. Uh, that he told everyone about. Uh, it's a big mystery, and the story does resolve, so I highly recommend reading it, Mysterious Ooh, Oh, you're not going to tell, tell us. us? No, no, it's, ah. it's honestly, it's, that's what I was saying, is this is just a, you need to read it. It would be, it would be wow. horrible to ruin the brilliance oh, okay. of this writing. No spoilers. Yeah. Okay. Right. So how, have you told people how to get hold of this, how to find mm. it? Yeah, The New Yorker, Mysterious Circumstances, it's called by David Gran. Or in the book, The Devil versus Sherlock Holmes. But once we stop recording, you'll just tell us what happened, right? Because yes, okay. absolutely. <laughs> it was yep. a self. He put his cravat on the wrong way around, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so easy. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy at Andrew Hunter M. James at James Harkin and Jenny at Jen Lyon yep or you can go to our group account at no such thing or our website no such thing as a fish.com we have everything up there from our previous episodes to bits of merchandise that we released also do make sure to check out fingers on buzzers it's Jenny's brilliant podcast uh, James you were on it not too long ago I believe well, Anna and I were on it yeah talking about quizzes Great yeah, guests. very cool. Great guests. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's two others that would have been really good, but, you know, that's cool. Um, <laughs> if you want to check it out, it's available in all the places you get your podcasts, so do listen to that and listen to us again next week when we will be back with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.